The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. I am so honored to be back up here today. And how many of you were at Chris's sermon last week on codependency? I don't know about you, but I personally really needed to hear that message. Um, and he talked about codependency, even from a pastoral standpoint. As, as pastors, sometimes we become dependent on the feedback that we're getting. And there was, my very first sermon was a Saturday night at Elder. And I was asked to give a sermon after a video. And Saturday night, people are kind of tired And it was dark, and there was a video on the Sea of Galilee, so it was really calming. And by the time I got up there, there were about three people in the front row that I could not wake up. Like, there was no shot of me waking these people up. And as I drove home, I thought, I have three more services tomorrow, and I can't even keep people awake. So I can totally relate to wanting that feedback or whatever it is we need from other people to validate our own worth when the reality is that we're already beloved. So that was such a message that I needed to hear. And what I really appreciated is Chris said that he had read one line in John that he had never read quite that way from Jesus. And that is John 2, 4. He said, dear woman, Is it our problem they miscalculated when buying wine and inviting guests? My time has not arrived. And so he read that through the the lens of codependency, which is something he hadn't done before. And as I was preparing my sermon for today, which is also um, in the book of John right now, that's what we are studying as a congregation. And as I was preparing, I started to read John completely differently than I had before. Because I noticed one thing, and that's that John often refers to himself as the beloved one or the one whom Jesus loved. A little humble brag, but when you're telling stories in biblical times, um, you wouldn't say your own name. So it's very likely that the author of John, John himself, included himself in these stories. And instead of saying his name, he called himself the one Jesus loves. And so at the tomb, at the beginning of the resurrection story in John 20, it reads, it reads almost like a comedy once you know that John is the author. It says, Before the sun had risen on Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene made a trip to the tomb where his body was laid to rest. In the darkness, she discovered the covering had been rolled away. She darted out of the garden to find Simon Peter and the dearly loved disciple to deliver this startling news. Mary Magdalene said, "They they have taken the body of our Lord and we cannot find him. It reads on. Together they all departed for the tomb to see for themselves. They began to run and Peter could not keep up. The beloved disciple arrived first, but did not go in. So the most important part of Christian history, John wants you to know that yes, the tomb is is empty, but also Peter is slow and I beat him to the tomb. 
The story continues. There was no corpse in the tomb, only the linens and cloths he was wrapped in. When Simon Peter finally arrived, he went into the tomb and observed the same. The cloth that covered his face appeared to have been folded carefully in place, not with the linen cloths, but to the side. After Peter pointed this out, the other disciple, oh, by the way, the one who had arrived long before Peter, you know, the fast one, also entered the tomb. And based on what he saw, faith began to well up inside of him. So not only is he awesome and fast, but unlike Peter, when he saw it, he was faithful. Before this moment, none of them understood the scriptures and why he must be raised from the dead. Then they all went to their homes. So I encourage you to finish reading the rest of that story on your own. And it's interesting to read it through the lens of John because this pivotal moment, the moment when BC becomes AD, the moment that we're all gathered here today, the most important part of Christian history, John was thinking about the big impact, but also the pettiness of racing Peter and winning and being more faithful and loved. And if I'm being honest, I can see a lot of myself in John when I read that. Caring about little tiny things that don't matter. I am a competitive person. And in middle school, we had something called the physical fitness testing, which was my Super Bowl. I would fail spelling tests, no problem, but that physical fitness testing was all I cared about. And I wasn't that naturally athletic. So the fastest girl in my grade was Melissa Dixon. She was born with a six pack when she was like two. <laughs> so she was gonna win all the, all the sprints. Carrie Meissen was gonna win all the long distance races. She always did. Ashley Carmichael could do pull-ups. So annoying, still can't do one. And so I thought, you know what? The really fast girls are gonna do the sprints and the endurance girls are gonna do the mile. I bet if I run the 400 meter dash, I'll be with a bunch of people that don't really know what event to sign up for, and I could maybe win that. So I went home and my dad measured 400 meters in our um, street. And down to the stop sign and back was almost exactly 400 meters. So every day after dinner, I brought a stopwatch and I'd time myself and it was downhill and then uphill, so I didn't know how accurate the time was, but I knew that if I could just build up my endurance and get it down, that I might have a chance of winning that day. So the track meet came, and I was on the outer lane, and you know if you're running a 400, which is once around the track, and you're on the outer lane, you get placed ahead of everyone, because the distance will eventually make up because the people on the inside of the track don't run as far. So I started out ahead of everyone. And you don't really know who's winning because of that rule until the last 100 meters. In the last 100 meters, I am dying. And my brother told me I'd be faster if I used aerodynamic hands. <laughs> so I was running that last 100 meters, just lactic acid buildup, ready to fall over. 
And this bouncy, cute, little, refreshed, not out of breath, redheaded, cute girl passes me and she says, hey, Erica. (laughs) I think I made that up, but that's what it felt like. I don't think she said, hey, Erica. All I know is she was not out of breath and she had no problem passing me and winning that race. And I thought, Emily Bowen is so cool. Who knew that Emily Bowen had that in her? And I became actually best friends with Emily Bowen eventually. She was my maid of honor. I was hers. We have lots of pictures together. And instead of showing you like a classy wedding photo, I thought I'd show you a spring break photo of me and Emily Bowen in college. (laughs) So shades inside and deuces up. But apparently, um, I'm going to show you a more, to be fair to Emily, this is totally unfair to her to show this picture. So this was Emily yesterday in Wisconsin. She now has a baby and a dog and a husband, and they have a party on the lake every year. Um, So they made a little living room on the frozen lake in Wisconsin, which reminds me, I'm so glad I live in Houston now. (laughs) But I tell this story to remind you and maybe myself too, that even when we know what's important, like the resurrection, like grace and mercy and all these big ideas, we can get caught up in the pettiness of what's my neighbor doing? Is he as fast as I am? Is he as cool as I am? Comparing ourselves to our coworkers, to our siblings, to strangers online that we don't even know when we are called to such a greater story. The story of John continues. Um, John 21 is when Jesus is resurrected. And he meets on the Sea of Galilee, a group of fishermen, and Simon Peter was in the boat. And I have a picture of the Sea of Galilee that Kirby took on our trip to Israel. It's a beautiful sea, kind of misty and calm. It's smaller than I thought. And so Jesus shows up on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and he's watching Simon Peter fish with all his friends and they're not catching anything. And I I have this theory that Jesus was really hungry because resurrection burns a lot of calories. So he was frustrated. His friends weren't catching any fish. He had a fire ready to go. He was ready to cook them breakfast and his friends weren't catching any fish. And because he's Jesus... He shouted to the boat to throw the net on the other side and that they would catch fish if they did that. And so the group of fishermen did that and they faithfully caught all these fish and they brought them to shore and Jesus cooked them breakfast and they ate all this fish together as one of Jesus' first appearances in his resurrected life. And during this story, Jesus and Simon Peter have a really sweet um, an interesting little exchange. So Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these other things? Simon Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my lambs. Jesus asked him a second time, Jesus, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon Peter said, yes, Lord, you must surely know that I love you. Jesus said, shepherd my sheep. For the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
Peter was hurt because he asked him the same question a third time. Do you love me? Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, look after my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you would dress yourself and go wherever you please. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and take you to the place you do not want to go. And I quick want to point out, I don't think Jesus needed a lot of validation to make sure he was loved. I don't think that's why he asked him three times. Because if we read the Bible, we know that Peter denied Jesus three times. So Jesus was very strategic in saying, you're going to deny who I am three times. I'm going to ask you three times back if you love me. And so it was symbolic of the history of Jesus and Peter. The story continues. Jesus said all this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God after this conversation. Jesus said, follow me. Peter turned around to see the disciple loved by Jesus following the two of them. The same disciple who leaned back on Jesus' side during their supper and asked, Lord, who is going to betray you? So the key takeaway from that last slide is follow me. So he's asking, okay, Peter, follow me. And his response is, Lord, and what will happen to this man? So imagine Jesus is asking Peter, will you follow me? And Peter's first response is, what about this guy? What about, what about him? You're asking me to, to go die for your cause, to go do all these hard things? What about all the other fishermen here? Why don't they have to follow you? Jesus responds, if I choose for him to remain till I return, what difference will this make to you? You follow me. It is from this exchange with Jesus that some thought this disciple would not die. But Jesus never said that. He said, if I choose for him to remain till I return, what difference does it make to you? And I think about that question, follow me. And how often are we given an invitation in our lives to do something that we feel called to do? But we're too busy looking around us, comparing ourselves to other people and questioning if that's what we should be doing. I know in my life this shows up all the time. And I was on a walk with my friend Trisha about three years ago. And Trisha and I get in these deep philosophical conversations. And she asked me a question. She said, Erica, if you could do anything, but you weren't afraid, what would you do? And I said almost without hesitation, I'd be a pastor. And she said, so why? She's like, well, first, she's probably like, really? You? But she said, so, so what are you afraid of? And I said, well, honestly, I don't know if I would listen to me. Like, I'm, I'm younger than a lot of pastors I know. Um, I dye my hair bright blonde. I don't know if I want my pastor to have bright blonde hair. I don't know why that matters, but I'm just judging myself here. Like, I, you know, my husband was in the NFL, and I don't know if people want to hear someone tell stories about the marginalized in Jesus when they have a life like mine. Like, I, I honestly don't know if I'd listen to me. 
And how often are we making excuses to ignore what we feel called to be and who we believe that we are because we're too afraid about what other people might think or what our neighbors are doing and we're asking God, what about them instead of, what if it's me? And I think this story invites us to not compare ourselves to others, but to step into the calling of our own life so that we can live a life through him. And all of these stories in John remind me of this simple reality that people are complicated. They're not good. There's not good people and bad people like our world often makes them out to be. We all have good and bad in us. I love the Lutheran theology of simultaneously sinner and saint. It's a very Lutheran thing to say. And I believe that's true, that we are both sinners and saints. And we can step into both of those because of grace. Peter was imperfect. We admire him. We name our kids after him. He's a disciple. We think he's great. But he denied Jesus three times. He was kind of a sketchy dude once in a while. And John, the author of this book, I think he's a brilliant author. I love the Gospel of John. But he had a little bit of his ego in the Gospel when he talked about beating Peter to that tomb. He's simultaneously a sinner and saint. We don't have to categorize him as good and bad. And a story in John that reminds me of this truth the most is when the Pharisees were talking to Jesus in John 8. And they said, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Moses says in the law that we are to kill such women by stoning. What do you say about that? So they're ready to kill this woman. Um, a little backstory: In John 7, there was a festival, um, there was a feast of the tabernacles. So we know from John 7 that there was this big celebration in town. And John 8 addresses an adulterer. So my guess is that this big celebration in town meant people were drinking and two people did something really stupid. And now they were ready to kill the woman for it. And so they're saying, you know, it's, let's see if this Jesus character believes in the Bible. Because Leviticus, wasn't the Bible at the time, Torah or Moses' law, in Leviticus, it says, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulterers are to be put to death. Rachel Held Evans has this to say about this point in the story. She says, they wanted to see if this Jesus fellow who ate with tax collectors and prostitutes and who touched the ritually impure could be tough on sin. So they picked a clear-cut sin with a clear-cut consequence, a biblical slam dunk, and passed around the stones. So they're like, okay, Jesus, if you say you are who we think you are, you're going to help us put this woman to death. And by the way, um, judging our morality on Levitical law doesn't work so well, because according to Leviticus, I can't eat shellfish. I'm a sinner. I can't wear two different kinds of fabric at one time. Um, I'm sinning right now. I can't shave my beard. I won't comment what I do with my chin hairs, but 
let's just say I'm a Levitical code violator. And we all probably are. And so to pick out some ridiculous phrase from Leviticus and say, this is why we should kill this woman is ridiculous. And Jesus knew that. And so the story continues. This was set up as a test for Jesus. His answers would give them grounds to accuse him of crimes against Moses' law. And Jesus bent over and wrote something in the dirt with his finger. They persisted in badgering Jesus, so he stood up straight. Now, before we get to the best line in this story, um, at 4.30 a.m., I woke up this morning, and I was like, I did not research what he drew in the dirt with his finger. And that really bothered me. So I'm going to tell you what my research at 4 a.m. showed. This actually doesn't matter to the story, but it felt really urgent to me this morning. One of the passages that was taught at the Feast of the Tabernacles is from the prophet Jeremiah. And the passage is about dust. And here are a few lines from Jeremiah 17, 13. Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust. So I wonder if at this celebration, if Jesus knew that this was something that they probably preached on, and he said, you know what? I'm going to write the name of the adulterers in the group in the sand because I'm following the Bible or the, the law, the code, the Jeremiah, and I'm going to use your own text to prove that what you're doing is using the text as a stone. He didn't need to know all that, but again, it felt really urgent this morning. And so the story continues. Jesus said, let the first stone be thrown by the one among you who has not sinned. And I think that's the most powerful question that we can ask ourselves, is how often are we calling out the sin of others and judging other people without being honest about our own lives? You know, we do this with entire groups of people, don't we? We have stereotypes about entire groups of people in this country. And one of the stories that addresses this kind of judgment so brilliantly is the Good Samaritan, because the Good Samaritan was a story that Jesus told to a Jew, and Jews would have hated Samaritans. And so part of the power of the Good Samaritan is Jesus is saying, oh, these people that you think are so terrible and the people that are evil, the ones you don't like, I'm going to make them the hero of this story and call them good. Because we all have simultaneous sinner and saint within us, and you're not seeing the good within the Samaritans that I want you to see through this story. And so we're constantly challenged to this idea that we are both good and bad, sinner and saint, and that the two go together, unless if you're Jesus. And I was at a time in my life, in 2011, when I needed to be reminded of this truth, Um, I felt lost when I first moved to Houston. And my friend told me about this church called Ecclesia on Taft Street. And so my husband and I went to this church. 
And I liked it. I, I felt like the people there were real, like they weren't pretending to be all perfect. And my husband and I invited the pastor over to have steak at our apartment. And I had not really furnished our apartment yet, so I went out and bought a card table and four chairs. And we had a grill on our apartment balcony, which was illegal. So I thought, this is going to be our last night in this apartment, because it was actually a smoker, which is even worse. My husband smoked steak on our balcony. There's smoke everywhere. Like, we're going to be evicted after this. And Pastor Chris came over. And at the time, I was active in my addiction to a prescription medication. And I had just interviewed for my dream job at Lululemon. You guys, I practiced so hard for this interview. I got like a whole outfit of expensive athleisure wear, and I showed up looking the part. Did not get, did not get the job. So I was just down on myself. And Chris said to me, Pastor Chris, he said, have you ever thought about starting a charity while Garrett is playing football? And I thought, you think I would know how to run a charity? Like, do you know how broken I am? I can't even get any job that I apply for right now. I can't even wake up on time because I was active in my addiction. And you think that I should run a charity? That's adorable. But I can say that a seed of goodness and hope was planted inside of me. And today we've raised almost $2 million for students in Houston area public high schools. Because I didn't need to believe that I was all bad. But I didn't need to believe that I was all good. I could, I could take my brokenness and my gifts and combine them together. Instead of obsessing about what, where I was lacking, I could focus on how to speak truth and goodness into others. Because when we do that, instead of throwing stones, and we look at groups of people, and we look for the good and the truth and the miracles within each other, I believe that's what it means to live into the story of resurrection. To know that we are saved by grace. And to lift up the goodness in each other so that we can live in the kingdom of heaven as he does. Ecclesia, let me pray with you. Dear God, I pray that as we go out into our weeks, that we will remember that your mission for our lives is much greater than the petty competitiveness of John. I pray that we will remember that we are both sinner and saint, and that we will live into your love story in a way that serves and honors you well. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.